Namaste to all of you. Glad to be together with you in the satsang evening. Tonight we are going to continue with the verses from Rumi. It's most probably the last session in this because we are close to the 20 poems which I chose comment from uh, the teachings from the spirituality of Rumi, <clears throat> together with the stories coming from the fathers of the desert. Uh, this has been a month of uh, satsangs consecrated to the sentiment of aspiration. It looks very much like anahata, because both the Christian mysticism and the Sufi mysticism have a lot of dimensions of Anahata Chakra, exploring the heart chakra. But um, when we look at what characterizes this spirituality, is precisely this the scarcity of techniques. Like there are not so many techniques. The fathers of the desert at the best, the, at that time didn't even exist, quantified as it is today, they would use a technology of prayer, a simplified technology of prayer. And the Sufis would have methods of prayer, out of which the most visually spectacular, but not the only one, is the dervish dance, the spinning dance, praying while spinning and spinning, for stimulating thus <coughs> the rising of Kundalini Shakti, and the mystical, the ultimate mystical experiences. Uh, again, I want to say it, we are used, due to the many gifts of Jewish mysticism, especially to the great gift of Jesus' presence and teachings, and due to some of the gifts of the Sufi mysticism, we are used to the fact that most of it goes through the heart, the qualities of the heart, such as love, forgiveness, hope, and all the beautiful virtues, humility, and all the beautiful virtues which come together with the arousing of the heart are being praised. And that's why many people in European mysticism Together, coming together with some of the bhaktas from India, they have all thought that, okay, spirituality is about going through the heart chakra. You have to be a heartful person to be truly, authentically a spiritualist. I want to leave it to your meditation and maybe some satsangs, which we might do in the future, to see that that's not true for the whole planet. For example, in Buddhism, in most forms of Buddhism, we do not see almost any Anahata Chakra. We see spirituality, which is very much focused on Manipura. Manipura seems to be the dominant chakra of the Asian people. Either they are Thais or Chinese or Japanese or Tibetan. There is a lot of Manipura there in their DNA, in their philosophy, in their lifestyle, in their national egregores, whichever you want to access, whichever reason you want to take, it's all of them and many more than those. 
And therefore, for such people, if you look at Dogen, just to quote a very famous uh, patriarch of Zen, one of the Japanese patriarchs of Zen, because most of the Zen patriarchs have been Chinese, the early ones, starting with Bodhidharma and so on. But um, going to the Japanese grandmaster like Dogen, who is no doubt an authentic master, a very enlightened master, a person who has reached spiritual emancipation, nevertheless, we see a lot of Manipura, maybe some profoundness on Ajna. Sometimes we encounter aesthetical sense and Puritanism, like in Vishuddha, but Anahata, it's, yes, there is some, you cannot say that those people all in Asia, they don't have Anahata. Even there, there are 25% people born in astrological earth sign, 25% people born in astrological water signs, fire signs, and 25% of the people born in air signs. The people who are born in air signs, they would have natively some Anahata. But that Anahata is not very much used in their culture compared to India, for example, where Anahata is used even in the Bollywood movies, even in the cheap Bollywood movies, people do have some Anahata because that's the specific of the Indian soul, of the Indian DNA, if you prefer to put it like this. Then, nevertheless, in Asia, it's very, very seldom being manifest. So what I'm trying to get to here is that we're not talking only about devotion, because devotion is a very slippery word. We say in the heart chakra you are going to be devoted. But believe me, a Japanese wife can be devoted to her husband without having any anahata chakra, or at least no more than necessary for her lungs and heart and thymus gland to work because nobody has zero anahata chakra because then they die. Then simply the chest part of your being cannot function. You simply die of something. So there is a minimal survival anahata chakra in everybody as long as you are healthy and you function biologically. But the big Anahata Chakra, the Anahata Chakra of devotion, the Anahata Chakra of a Chaitanya or of a Rumi or others like them, it does not exist in that environment. It does not exist because children are not taught how to manifest it and how to express it. It does not exist because there is no literature, there is no art. There is no music. There is no form of manifestation which goes in Anahata in those places. When you listen to the Samizen music of Japan or whichever other instrument, there is not one single one of them which works on Anahata. No, And that's why in India you have at least the Rudravina which works somehow partly on Anahata. You have the Indian flute. This bamboo flute, which works on Anahata very nicely, and others, you know, like you at least you can find Anahata music. There isn't such a thing in Japan. No, and it doesn't mean, therefore, that those people are doomed and incapable of doing spirituality. They have actually done quite a lot of spirituality in the history of that country. 
<coughs> only that the spirituality which they have done was not too much an Anahata brand of spirituality, is not too much an Anahata type of spirituality. And that's why when those people manifested aspiration, the famous Ishvara Pranidana, of which we have been talking for the last three weeks in particular, when they had Ishvara Pranidana, the longing for God, the desire to surrender to God, the desire to give yourself to God, the desire to live for God, the desire to consecrate all your actions and all your life to something which is supreme, absolute, eternal, then those people did it with their Manipura chakra in a Manipuristic way, in maybe with some Ajna chakra sometimes, that's more rare, but maybe with that. All those of you who understand the yogic psychology of the chakras, you understand exactly what I'm trying to say, because you already know some things about the psychology of the chakras and how different it can be. That's why, please understand, everybody can have aspiration. Aspiration is not only from the heart, but Especially for Christian people, Jesus taught them that you should express your aspiration through the heart. 95% of it should be through the heart. Oh, the fact that you can be very determined on Manipura Chakra, that's a bonus. That's, it's okay also, but, but the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart. No, go there, and it's a must in the Christian mysticism. And in the other two forms of mysticism, which I mentioned in the beginning of this lecture, like in the Jewish mysticism, in the authentic quality Jewish mysticism, and in the Islamic mysticism, again, the quality one, like uh, I often like to quote Rumi and the Sufis and great metaphysicians like Ibn Arabi and so on, uh, for those people, they themselves recognize that they know what Anahata is, that they heard from many prophets about the value of Anahata, including from Jesus, whom they consider a prophet prior to the prophet Muhammad, that they like it, that they understand that God talks to you a lot through Anahata, but unfortunately their culture, either the Jewish one or the Islamic Sufi one, has a lot of Manipura, because these were people living in a tropical climate in the tropics and in the desert, and the nature around them was full of fire. They lived at high temperature, burning sunshine, and this automatically gives a lot of fire. If you live in, I don't know where to say, um, some islands uh, in the Azores Islands or whichever the other ones from Portugal in Madeira Islands and so on, then we're talking about a lot of water around you. And then there's no doubt that people living in those places, they are Svadistanistic. We live in an island here and we know that there is a lot of Svadistana and the bozos are coming to do full moon parties exactly on this island because it's full of Svadistana and when we look at the drug, drug culture and other things which happen on this island, it's Vadistana, Vadistana, Vadistana. Even when they want to do trance dance, don't imagine for a second that their trance dance goes to Vishuddha or to Sahasrara. 
it's Svadhisthana, 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 and Svadhisthana again. And thus, please be advised of the fact that, of course, in the Sufi and even in the Jewish older mysticism, there is a lot of Manipura. Many of their prophets, as well as Muhammad later, and uh, even a fellow like Rumi or others, they have a lot of Manipura, and Rumi confesses it by declaring that his love for God is not so much love as it is a passion. He's burning for God, which means he loves God from Manipura. Is that bad? No, it's not bad. But if you talk to God on Manipura, then God will talk back to you on Manipura because it's a walkie-talkie. It's the same channel. God will not use another channel. We'll use the channel which you have opened towards the divine consciousness. And therefore, that's exactly one of the themes which we have seen approached, that it is understood that this Middle Eastern love is loaded if you want polluted, but I don't want to be negative about it. It's loaded with a reasonable amount of manipura, of fire, and at the same time it is known that for the ideal connection with the divine, it's best to go to Anahata. You can say, why not Vishuddha? Why? Because human beings seldom go to Vishuddha. There is one person in a million or less in a country or in a generation which goes there. And those are the people who become geniuses. How many Leonardo da Vinci's and Albert Einstein's did we have in Europe in 500 years or more? Maybe, again, 50. But 50 in 500 years, it means exactly what I told you, that there is one per generation. No, in the whole, in, hundred, in millions of people. And that's why there is a love and an aspiration on Vishuddha. And there is a love and an aspiration on Ajna. But pe- normal people will not even understand it. Teaching that is completely useless. It's like you are trying to teach yoga for the gods. The gods have got their own yoga teachers. Don't you worry about the gods. Problem is that you teach for the people down here, and the people down here, they don't understand at the level of the gods. And that's why on this planet, we see very often the four elements used as the foundation, that there are there is aspiration and love, with the proper quotation marks, on Muladhara, on Zvadistana, on Manipura, and when it's really, really beautiful when it becomes really, really exquisite, the best of them all goes to Anahata Chakra. Thus, I want to make it clear for you that we don't talk in the last three satsangs, although I gave you examples from Rumi and the fathers of the desert, which were fighting with their lower chakras and striving to go to Anahata Chakra and stay in Anahata Chakra, Not only that they didn't always succeed, they always had to confront things on Manipura, on Svadhisthana, and others. These were present all the time. We as human beings, we cannot get out completely out of these chakras, except if we go to live alone on a mountain, and for the next 50 years, we don't talk to anybody, we don't meet anybody, 
we don't interact with anybody, then we can become, but then we'll become so different from the people from the street that they will not even understand us. We will be total weirdos. We'll be something totally different from the people. The whole art which many gurus have tried, and you can see it from in the modern Indian gurus, as well as in Rumi in the 12th century, was to keep a sort of a bridge, to have one foot in humanity and one foot in the camp of God, and in this way to be able to translate. Rumi talks about fire, determination, and so on. He talks about Manipura. Rumi treats God as his beloved. He uses metaphors where he says, I want to kiss every lock of your hair, this, that. Like this is Vadistanistic romantic behavior. But he knows that the people from Tabriz or wherever he was living, the people from the Middle East, they would understand that. That we have got a crazy mystic who is a poet who compares his love for God with the love which I felt when I was a teenager and I fell in love with my wife and I felt like I wanted to kiss her footsteps. I was so much in love for everything. That I understand. I understand that somebody can be in love like that. So all these mystics, they have tried to speak in the language of the masses. Because if they would speak in the language of Leonardo da Vinci or whoever, uh, Albert Einstein, who will understand them? Albert Einstein, at the time when he was keeping conferences about the theory of relativity, he said that honestly, he didn't think that there were more than 10, 10, 10 people in all the modern physics in his time who could really understand the theory of relativity the way he understood it. Like everybody understood logically what he was trying to say and the little mathematics associated with it because the theory of relativity is not spectacularly strong in mathematics because Albert Einstein was very poor in mathematics and he asked a mathematician, I forgot his name, to do the mathematics for his theory, you know, like because he abhorred mathematics and he had been a weak student in high school and university. So basically what I'm trying to say here, it's like this. Um, There are different languages and these great teachers, including one like Jesus and others, they spoke to the masses. Omar Khayyam, the great uh, Persian mystic, astronomer, mathematician, and spiritualist as well, I wonder how many of you have read once in your life the fundamental poem of Omar Khayyam, which is called Rubayat. No, the, it's like an offering. It means a sort of offering. Uh, you know, it's an amazing poem, but it's Vishuddha, Ajna. It's the spiritual quest of a genius, of an astronomer. He, whenever he expresses his doubts, he speaks about galaxies and time and why am I here and stuff like this. And if not, he comes down to alcohol. He uses the metaphor of alcohol. 
like he says, I'm drunk, I lost my way, I'm, you know. It doesn't mean he was actually a drunk and he was drinking a lot. He uses it as a metaphor. Paramahamsa Yogananda liked his work specially, and he even wrote a little brochure of comments on the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which is called the Wine of the Mystics. Like the mystics talk about the wine, it doesn't mean they actually drink lots of wine. Very seldom it happened that people like, I don't know, Rasputin or I don't know what, a Gurdjieff or so on, they actually drank alcohol. Most of the great mystics, even when they used metaphors of alcohol, they were not drinking it, actually. They were comparing that state of consciousness in which you can't find where north is anymore. They compared it with being stoned and being drunk. But actually, uh, they were not talking about uh, physically, alcoholically getting drunk. So, coming back to our story, this is uh, one of the great gifts that great mystics, they knew how to speak to the masses. Jesus, for example, is using some absurd metaphors. The kingdom of heaven, everybody wants to get to the kingdom of heaven. What is it? For normal people on the street, not metaphysicians, not astronomers like Omar Khayyam. Jesus wants to define the kingdom and says the kingdom of heaven is like a fisherman's net. He gathered it And he found all sorts of stuff there. And among them there was a priceless pearl. And then he threw everything away and kept that pearl. Question. Excuse my French. Did you fucking understand what the kingdom of heaven is? This is such a bullshit parable. No, But it comes from the mouth of Jesus. No, Because he's, he's talking to fishermen. And he says, what if you discover a priceless pearl and it's more valuable than anything which you have ever fished in your life? Isn't it worth keeping it? Isn't it more valuable than everything? He's trying to say something, but something very muladharistic, very svadistanistic for simple people, for farmers and so on. So that is a great art to be able to express this aspiration in common terminology, not to go too far up, because then you speak to the people in Satya Yuga. If they will conserve your language and your papers, then in Satya Yuga, which means in uh, I don't know how many thousands of years, they will find your manuscript, and when they will read it, they will say, oh, wow, this guy is amazing. No, like You might resonate with the people from Satya Yuga. But the people now, then they will say, this guy is a useless teacher. No, it's like he's talking and he says something and we don't understand anything. He's raving in a world of his own. So back to our story, please remember that the essential thing, the tenth of the yamas and niyamas, which is the cornerstone, which brings them all together. It's like the Lord of the Rings, the master ring which controls all the other nine. I don't think the author thought strictly about Yama and Niyama, but through a strange synchronicity, it fits. It's a simile. It's a beautiful simile. So, this aspiration is the one fundamental unifying 
coordinate in all spirituality. And again, we know that there are people who come to yoga and they don't have this aspiration. I myself, when I started yoga, I was interested mostly in parapsychology. I was interested in the paranormal abilities which come together with yoga. If somebody would have said, I can teach you a yoga which in two years you can do every night astral projection and lucid dreaming and go in your astral body thousands of kilometers away and more, I would have said, where do I have to sign? Where do I sign for that? I want that. No. Somebody would have said, we will help you find yourself. I would have said, why? Because I'm perfectly comfortable with myself. I don't have any problem. You know, like uh, you are trying to imply that I have some misunderstanding about my own identity. But I don't. I don't. I feel perfectly comfortable with myself. Although, of course, myself was fake. I was talking about my personality. But I didn't have a conflict about that. I was happy with this superficial personality. I was happy in my ignorance. I didn't know who I was and I didn't care that I didn't know who I was because I did not see in it a problem. Later, after I have done a year of yoga and more, I discovered that this was much, much more important than astral projection. And that Ramakrishna wouldn't have given a shit on astral projection. But on self-realization, he would have given his life for it. And then I was even a little bit upset because I had to change my values. I had to say, okay, so I'm, uh, I'm not doing yoga to learn to levitate. You know, I would like to levitate. Fuck the self-realization. What's the self-realization? I feel very happy with myself. No? And if you give me something about a religion or something, you know what? I can even worship somebody in a religion. But as long as that, if I worship Jesus and he makes me float one meter up from the ground, yay, that's it, you know? That's what I want to see. No? In a certain way, my quest was my aspiration was after something else. I was aspiring after something else, not after the major thing. No, the major thing is, I don't know who I am. I've been around here for 60 years, and I don't know why I came. Who sent me? Did I do right? Am I in the right? What, what should I do? You know, What if the right thing would be to run tomorrow morning to the first Buddhist monastery which exists around here and shave my head and turn into a Buddhist monk because that's the actual truth. That's the actual path. So, you know, then I'm sitting here with you taking care to play to pay the electric bills and the land rent for Agama. I'm wasting my time grievously. You know, I'm doing karma yoga here to keep a school on its feet. And actually, I should be in a Zen monastery or something, you know. Then, why am I doing this? So, the question is much, much deeper. But when I was 19 years old, I couldn't see it. Because I had a happy childhood, childhood and relatively a happy teenage time, 
with the pains and confusions inevitable to any teenager, but not much worse than uh, the average. Like, I'm not a case of David Copperfield or something who has grown up in misery and suffering and torture and challenges and this. And therefore, I was happy with myself to a large extent. And therefore, I was not searching. I was searching for something, but I didn't know what I was searching for. And thus, I'm telling you all this to understand that people have an aspiration. Not everybody has an aspiration for the big thing, because most people don't understand that big thing, and therefore they never question themselves, do I want to go there? Is it really worth putting 12 years of my life into this and doing yoga every day and meditation? And should I invest this amount of work? People are ready to invest more than 12 years to become medical doctors. Because this will give them a respectable social status, even power to a certain extent, lots of money and other things. And therefore, people would give 12 years of their education And more, sometimes to become a doctor, you have to study like 19 years of your life, from primary school, including everything. And then, so, and people say, it's not a problem. I will study because I want to be a doctor. But to be a yogi, to to reach self-realization, very few people have this awareness. There is a God, and I don't know why, but I would like to see this God I would like to feel this God. I would like to be friends with this God. I would like to love this God. And I would like to feel the love of this God. And I would like this God to give me the price of immortality. Make me never die, never disappear, stay conscious just as I am, and all that. Very few people raise this question. These are the people who come with a great spirituality from a previous lifetime, and then even as teenagers, they are like, no, the whole, the whole thing is rigged. The whole thing is not good. I don't know why. I want something else. Ramakrishna was studying texts of yoga and inquiring on yogis even when he was seven years old. So was Paramahamsa Yogananda. No? And therefore these people were clearly born with a subconscious memory of something, of searching for something fundamentally. But I did not. When I was a teenager, I was asking myself if I should be a researcher, a scientist, a physicist. You know, what would fit? Like, that's how I saw my future. At, or the maximum which I could see is if I could make a real discovery in physics and get a Nobel Prize like Albert Einstein, you know. That would have been the Jesus Christ of my teenage years, because I didn't even know who Jesus Christ was. I hardly knew that a fellow called Jesus Christ existed, and I thought he was bullshit for old women like my grandmother. And thus, I am um, simply saying that people have different aspirations, And in yoga, we are used to that because yoga is very wide. There are people who come to yoga simply because they have cancer in their lungs and they want to live. 
they don't want surgery, they don't want chemotherapy, they want to live a long, good life. And they heard that yoga can make it happen. And it does, if you are super serious about it, and your diet, and all the rest. And that's why I'm, I'm saying this, because for those people, their aspiration is to live. And then 20 years later, they say, I did yoga, I have no more cancer, now I live, but I don't fucking know why I live. Like maybe I should have died when I was young, because my whole life seems to be a little bit pointless. Like I'm living, but why am I living? No? And thus, we go from one aspiration to another aspiration. Uh, people aspire for health, for a good life. People aspire for paranormal things. And some people aspire for the knowledge of the infinite. Again, when the first PhD on yoga was written, the subtitle was wonderful because it was called yoga dash immortality and freedom. These were the two words associated with yoga by a PhD genius in the 1930s. Immortality and freedom. The question is, how many of you have longed for real freedom? Because in the capitalistic world, you can smoke as much marijuana as you want and you can drink as much Coca-Cola as you want and then you think you are free. Therefore, at least if you are a slave, you want to run away and to become free. But when people give you the illusion that you are free, while you are not really free, you saw during this pandemic how free people are to the big brother. you know. And then you know, when you are not free... You want to be free, but when you have the illusion that you are free, you just sit there and say, oh, I'm me, I'm free, and so on. And it's all just a celebration of your ego where something small and ridiculous inside you is screaming, me, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me, you know. And there is really not much to see in the end, you know. Even... uh, sacred monster like Napoleon or something, in the end, is just a ridiculous piece of shit, you know, and there is nothing to see, you know, so all this me, 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 it's like pathetic, but I need to express myself. No, you don't, because you are just another piece of shit compared with the other 8 billion which live on this planet, and nobody is interested in your expression. You think that the world is dying to see your paintings, to listen to your music, to read your essays, and so on. Nobody gives a shit, honestly. No, there is in America all the time. You meet, hi, how are you today? But nobody even sits to listen for the answer to that one. No, because nobody actually cares. It's just a polite way of addressing people, like, I care. In the end, it's take care of yourself, you know. Go fuck yourself somewhere where I don't see you and hear you and take care of yourself. This is the problem, that we live in this ego and people longing for a higher meaning and so on. Either you are born like Ramakrishna or like Yogananda or this appears through some study seeing what life is and where it goes. So... To make the long story short, because I want to get to this roomy, but I did slide in a long introduction, 
the long the problem is that people have aspirations and some people only have a spiritual aspiration no? like jesus was judged by some people such as the roman procurator pontius pilate do you think that pontius pilate gave a shit about who jehovah was that this man came and said i am the son of jehovah He said, you and Jehovah can go in the next hut and fuck each other in the ass if you want, you know. He's like, I don't give a shit, I'm a Roman procurator. I believe in some gods who are supporting Rome and the Roman Empire. And for the rest, you and all the Jewish mystics, you can go hang yourself. You know, see if I care. See if I blink an eyelid because of what you guys believe. No, so that's why I say... So many people today listen to Jesus and they sometimes shed tears because they said this man is so true. He is so right. No? But there are other people who did not and still do not understand anything about it because they don't share the same aspiration. Therefore, there is an aspiration for health There is an aspiration for prosperity and wealth. There is an pro- aspiration even for righteousness, like a social righteousness. In America it's called today political correctness. You know, you have to appear like you are righteous in all the ways. You know? And most everybody is a liar and a hypocrite. Whenever you test them, they lie somewhere and they fail somewhere. And they just have a mask that they are concerned citizens, you know. But in the end, you can be a concerned citizen only if you really love the world. Only when it comes from the heart. If you love your neighbor as much as you love God and as much as you love yourself, then you could really care for the world. How many people care to such an extent, you know? When they bathe in hundreds of millions of dollars and 30,000 kids died today in Africa and Asia of starvation. You are going to tell to me that Warren Buffett and Bill Gates love the world? They could give $30,000 every day for one year. It would amount maybe to $1 billion per year. $1 per day would give enough rice to a child to not die of starvation. No? They could save, one of these rich people could save all the children who die all the year on this planet. But they don't do it. They just try to create vaccines for COVID or something like that. You know, and everybody has doubts about their motivation. But it would be so simple, just give them food for God's sake. Because they die of starvation. They don't die of COVID in Africa. They die of starvation, first of all. No? And thus, there is this myth that people are concerned. But Shambhala is concerned. Buddha is concerned. The great bodhisattvas are concerned. Jesus is concerned. The great mystics like Rumi and many other saints and prophets, they are concerned about humanity because they have reached to this level of caring. Otherwise, no, it, it's very much a hypocrisy. And then if we analyze what aspirations do people have, At least the lucky ones, they have an aspiration for God 
and you are going to say it's an egoistic aspiration. Like, I don't know what's happening to you guys, but when I die, I want to go to Brahma Loka or some, whatever, call it, whatever you want to call it, Shambhala, something, you know? Isn't it an egoistic thing? Like, I don't give a shit if you die of hunger tomorrow or if you have wrong concerns and smoke dope and destroy your brain all day long and in the end you die like a piece of shit somewhere. And It's your choice. I don't have time to take care of you. I don't have energy to take care of you. I cannot be your supervisor. At least I can go in a Zen monastery or in a cave somewhere and work on my crown chakra. That I can do. So at least some people who have the first degree of this aspiration, they have the aspiration at least for themselves. Even the Buddhist scriptures which come from the ideal of um, compassion set by Buddha, that you have to be compassionate, you have to try to be compassionate. Nevertheless, there are sutras in Buddhism, even in Thai Buddhism, which say very clearly, first, take care of yourself. Because you don't know if you can help anybody. No, they will say, yeah, yeah, and then they will go and smoke more hash in their bungalow. You know, It's like, what care did you have of them? People shoot themselves in the food all the time. You don't have time to take care. If you are Jesus, that's a different story because then you have a mission to fulfill. But the normal people don't have such a mission. For the normal people, there is this aspiration. At least if you can, save yourself. Even that is almost impossible. Krishna in Bhagavad Gita is telling to Arjuna, Arjuna, out of a thousand people, and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi has translated out of thousands of people, because Sanskrit is ambiguous there, and if it's thousands of people, the percentage is even lower, but let's take it the best percentage possible. Out of 1,000 people, says Krishna, 4,000 years ago, when it was not so dark a Kali Yuga as it is now, and at that time, when people had no internet and TikTok and, uh, I don't know, Netflix and other things to distract their attention. No. Krishna says, Arjuna, out of a thousand people, one. One is ready to do something concrete for their spiritual betterment. Therefore, my dear friends, maybe we are birds of a feather. Maybe you came to me because we are kindred souls, we are somehow related, maybe you share my type of madness. If not, I'm just a clown performing here for you, and you can always dismiss me and try to say, okay, but this Swami, he's a little bit too much, you know, it's like I cannot go where he goes. He is a bit of an extreme person and so on. But maybe you actually sympathize with me and you are somehow on the same page with me. We, if you are, we are a minority. The gay people and others, they complain that they are a sexual minority. But they represent, what, 5% of the world population? No, we represent 0.1%. Maximum one in a thousand is the kind of people who listens to such a satsang and who practices yoga every day and all that. Therefore, we are not a minority. We are an ultra-minority. We are a real small minority. And most people don't understand. 
What does stupid Rumi want? There were a lot of happy citizens in Tabriz or wherever he lived in Tehran or in Istanbul or wherever he lived in his century. You know, why is Rumi wailing and moaning like a masochist? You know, when he could be happy like everybody around him. So, this is the essence. Either you come from Muladhara or from Svadistana, very imaginatively, or from Manipura, with fire burning to a certain extent, egoistic, like I want to save myself and I don't give a shit about the rest of the world. No, I have to find God now in this life, or otherwise, I don't know if in the next life I'll remember about this whole caboodle, and then I will be defenseless and exposed completely and to the Maya and to all the rest. Therefore, or you come from Anahata, partly, then there is this aspiration. There is a longing. And this longing, I can give it to you by talking about other people who had this longing. And therefore, when you listen about the fathers of the desert, you say, yeah, 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 I I can be like them. Or you say, come on, that's... Some bullshit, you know? So, therefore, you see where you belong. You know where your aspiration is. Maybe your aspiration is to be healthy and to live a long, healthy, good life. Even that is paradise in Kali Yuga. When you see the way the modern medicine goes, my goodness, you know, what's happening once you cross the age of 60 and you start going into the medical system, they say that the medical system works. But the amount of pain that you endure in that, for that so-called health, sometimes you wonder if it's worth it at all. Then some people want a good life, controlling their own energies and emotions. Some people want to be righteous, religious, moral Ethical. Some people have an attraction towards a clean, moral, and ethical life that's called in Indian culture dharma, that you are interested in dharma, to fulfill the goals of dharma. Some people would like to use the power of their mind to make money and prosperity. Maybe there are some of you who already got money because you have a karma from a previous life and everything came to you relatively easily. If I ask you, how did you make your money? You'll say, well, honestly, I don't know how, because I didn't make more effort than my high school colleagues, but I somehow have sticky fingers. It comes to me, no? but for other people, it doesn't. And then you have to use yoga for that. There's a famous book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari of Robin Sharma, one of the authors in business and this, and he says he puts conditions. It's a parable. It's a story. And he, in that story, the teacher says, if you want to have a successful business like this, you have to not allow any negativity come in your mind. Like you cannot be allowed for one day to doubt in the success of your enterprise. And the student says, are you kidding? I'm a human being. Everybody has doubts and bad thoughts and negative thoughts. Now you tell me that I cannot allow it to be in my mind. What am I, Superman or something? And his teacher tells him very clearly. That's why there is one Bill Gates, one Warren Buffett, 
one Steve Jobs and so on, because those people were exceptional in many ways. We can throw rotten tomatoes at them, but those people had a stubbornness and they were so positive and they fulfilled this requirement that they did not cultivate negativity about their business. So if you say, but what am I, Superman? Then stay poor. Stay poor. It's as simple as that. No, you are not Superman. You stay poor. So for everything, you need an aspiration, a longing, a something. You need a power, and yoga can be used for it. And then there are the people who are interested in the magic, in the occult, in the paranormal, and those are more rare, like when you have an Alistair Crowley like this, everybody says, come on, man, that's a pervert, it's a black magician, it's all that. And then you have the people who are interested in the big issue. And many people say, are they crazy? Is it useful for me? In which way it is useful for me? So think about it in this respect. Where is your aspiration? What do you want to become? Where do you want to be in 20 years? People who have no brahmacharya, they say, "Uh, I just want to be happy. Then maybe you shouldn't come to my yoga courses. If that's your answer, maybe you should come to the beginner yoga courses and then drop out of it. You know, because that's not the answer of Ramakrishna. That's not the answer of Milarepa. That's not the answer of Rumi. But of course, I don't want to chase you away from the courses because many people have changed their motivation by simply discovering how amazing some of these things are. Life gave them the lessons which they needed to receive. And ultimately, if you come to yoga just because you want to be healthy and live a hundred years, I'll be happy to see you doing that. If one of my students says, using the method of Agama, we have lived for a hundred years and we have been healthy and so on, I take off my hat before them, you know. It's a story of success in the end. It's a success story. Doesn't mean as much as Jesus has asked for, but it is a small success story which enchants other people and gives them the hope and the expectations for it. So in this way, in the last three weeks, we spoke about aspiration. That among the many people, one in a thousand is a man or a woman who longs for something deeper, longs for something existential and meaningful. And you can say, but I also long to make money. Good, good for you. Use yoga. Come to the millionaire yoga or whatever they call that workshop. There is a workshop of accomplishing with a mind or something. They teach you all the tricks, all the mantras, all the things which you can use. There is a lot in yoga. Don't think that in India there are not many people who looked for mantras, yantras, magic and other things. How to make money, how to be wealthy. It's still a country of super poor people, which means most didn't do it and, or it didn't work for them. But the concern is there. You wouldn't be the first, you wouldn't be the last. When you talk to Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna was feeling a burn in his hand if you touched it with a coin. People said he was hysterical. You know, come on, man, you are hysterical. That's a bit much. That's how Ramakrishna was. 
and therefore he definitely didn't want to use yoga to make money. But otherwise, no, everything is welcome as long as it's a success story in the positive, moral, and ethical way. And then people like Rumi, they place themselves on top of that ladder. There are people who have a special aspiration, a special longing. If they are healthy or not, of course, nobody is crazy to ask to be sick or to ask for pain. Only masochistic, self-destructive people condemn themselves to pain and illness. A normal person would like to be healthy. A normal person would like to have prosperity and a roof over their head when it's the rainy season or something. Like, people are not crazy. There is a common sense everywhere in this world. But then there are these people who, although they have the common sense like you and I, they also want something more. And therefore, the last poem which I read, if I remember correctly, was the one about do you love me more than you love yourself? And it concluded with the amazing verse in which Rumi says, If I love myself, I love you. If I love you, I love myself. This is the consequence of Augustine in Christianity. And it is the, con- the conclusion of Kashmiri Shaivas as well. The divine soul deserves to be loved because it's from God. Consciousness, the I am, the capacity of feeling I am, it's a divine gift which animals have not received, and therefore it's worth loving it. You have to love what you are, because that's a rare, rare gift. And a few poems left, I hope, to conclude tonight in spite of such a long introduction. Another poem, again, they are relatively short, of Rumi, says obsessively, die, die, die in this love. If you die in this love, your soul will be renewed. Because the human being has to go through the pure consciousness, and the pure consciousness is the void of nirvana and to reach that you have for a time which looks like infinite to give up everything give up your astrological characteristics give up your intelligence give up your body give up the life in your body give up everything it is exactly like the interstellar guy who jumps into a black hole he thinks that he does that to save his daughter. And he jumps to die into a neutronic star, into a black hole, only to discover that in the black hole there is something else which nobody was suspecting, a sort of a parallel way of existence in a form of pure consciousness transcending space and time. 
exactly in the same way the mystics feel like they are going to die. In Christianity, the parable is given by Jesus himself, where the mystics say you have to get crucified like Christ, and then God will bring you back, resurrect you like Christ. But people say, and what if he doesn't? That's precisely the risk that you have to take. That's where you show that you surrender indeed. Unconditionally, I jump head forward. So it's like this. It feels like I'm going to die. When you go in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, it feels like you are going to die. In some complex forms of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, where it goes down to the physical body, the heart is stopping and the breath is stopping. And I have known people who were before it doing Kundalini Yoga and something, and they told me, you know, it feels that my heart is going to stop and I'm choking and I am afraid to die. And I tell them clearly, until you don't defeat this fear of death, like you have to surrender. You have to accept that you might die. Let it happen. Because what will happen is that you will not die. But your mind doesn't know what's at the other end of the tunnel. And because of that, you, it's legitimate for you to have this fear. So that's how Rumi is. He says, die, die, die in this love. Sometimes people say, I love you so much, I feel I'm dying. Especially women, when they have a super intense orgasm, they say, oh my God, I'm dying. God, God, you know, like, there are women who, if they have a talented lover and they have too many orgasms, then after the fifth or sixth one, they start going like, I'm going to die. Please stop, I'm dying, I'm losing myself. Like, I don't know what's happening. I'm even a little bit afraid. Like, stop it, you know, but, and, but they still want it. No, and therefore, the thing is jump. Have the courage. But for to have that courage is like you have to want to give yourself up. You have to have this thing that my ego, I flush it down the toilet if necessary. I don't care about it. Let me disappear. That's the way it's going to be. I disappear, see if I care. No? And therefore, this is like a suicidal spirit almost. Die, die, of course. He doesn't speak about orgasm or something. He speaks about the mystical love. He says, die in this love. And the promise is there. If you die in this love, your soul will be renewed. Like when you come out of such a state of ecstasy, your soul has been renewed. You are a new person. Because you've been in touch with God. God has given you a shower. God has refreshed you. You have recharged the battery of your jivatman. And when you come back, your soul feels like renewed. This is where the mystics go to renew their soul. They go in ecstasy. They go in love. They go, why not, in meditation? Because even meditation is one of the methods. And he continues obsessively, die, die. Don't fear the death of that which is known. That is the ego, the prakriti. No, don't fear the death of this. It's an illusion. There is the background, which is the purusha, the spirit, which is immortal. That's your safety net. But before you've been there, you don't know it. And therefore, the first time is the most difficult because the first time is like, oh my God, 
I'm going to disappear. If you die to the temporal, you will become timeless. You die on one side, you are resurrected on the other. Here you are crucified, on the other side you are resurrected. It's immortality. It's another life. Die, die. Cut off those chains that hold you prisoner to the world of attachment. Because as long as you are on this side, there is always karma, there is always attachment, and therefore you are tied up, you are bound, you are held prisoner, as he says. And he says, die, have the courage to die. But people say, man, I have to be really crazy to go there. Yes, that's why one person in a thousand looks for that. Because not everybody is crazy enough to look for that. People say, what do I have? You have to be completely fucked up and dissatisfied with what's happening here. Like what's happening here has to be so bitter that you will say, you know what, I'm even ready to die. You know, I'm, I just want to find something to be happy because everything around here is an illusion. Don't forget, Buddha was a prince. He had everything. He was on top of the things. He was promised to be the next king and, and he was dissatisfied. He said, fuck, it's all a big lie. It's all a big illusion. That's, but some people say, I don't feel that. You don't feel it. Buddha did feel it. Rumi did feel it. That's why he says, die. Cut off those chains that hold you prisoner to the world of attachment. Die. Die. Die to the deathless and you will be eternal. Like, die for God. And then you will reach eternity, immortality and freedom. Like in yoga, you know. But dare to die for it. Let go of everything. People usually want to hold something. They say, I would like to die for God, but can I still hold this? Like I want to have a beautiful body. I want to have health. I want to have money. I want to have social success. People always, you know, but God is jealous, as the Jewish prophet said. He first of all wants to see you once that you give up everything. That you can go butt naked. And then... He will give you everything. But he wants to make sure that you can go totally. Die. That's why he's right. It's like a death. Die. Die. And come out of this cloud. When you leave the cloud, you will be the effulgent moon. As I told you, in India often and in the Arabic countries, the symbol of the divine light is not the sun because the sun is painful and destructive in those countries, and that's why they prefer the moon. The moon, especially the full moon, is round, beautiful, charming, and cool in the night, and that coolness is so rare and so beautiful. So, he says, die, come out of the cloud, like everybody is in a cloud. What cloud? The cloud of ignorance, the cloud of maya, the cloud of confusion. When you leave the cloud, you will be the effulgent moon. Like the moon is shining on a clear night, that's how your spirituality will shine. Die, die, die to the din and the noise of mundane concerns. You live in a city like Rumi lived with people. He was surrounded by din and noise. It's like you go in the marketplace. Everybody is selling cucumbers or something. 
you know, and everybody wants to cheat everybody, and everybody wants more money, and everybody wants more respect, and everybody wants their family to thrive, and everybody wants their country to thrive, and why you know, people are attached, you know, and for Rumi, like for most of the mystics we experience some time alone, this is the din and noise. That means spiritual people need at least a room of themselves, if not a house of themselves or a place of themselves, where they can go and just be alone. Alone, away from the din and noise. This world is full of the din and noise. Even Jesus, before he started his mission, he fasted for 40 days somewhere on the edge of the desert. No, Like he took some time alone to verify once more, am I ready to start? Am I ready to go? And then for three years, Jesus was in the din and noise. Although the Bible says that often he was going alone in the wilderness for a few hours to pray, to be alone. If even Jesus, who was super gifted for his mission and for spirituality, being an avatar, he needed time with himself, then don't be ashamed when you need time with yourself. Most of the people that practice yoga, in my experience, are people who are loners. They like to be alone. They like to socialize a little bit here and there, but not too much. Like eventually they get tired of socializing and they say, I need some space for myself. I need some space of myself. Nowhere you can be, you shut down everything, then you can be with yourself. This loneliness of a spiritual type comes from Vishuddha Chakra. Usually Vishuddha Chakra gives this kind of puritanic loneliness where you just want to be alone. Everything and everybody seems to be impure to a certain extent. And you with your inner voice, there you can research in silence. So he says, die to the din and the noise of mundane concerns. In the silence of love, you will find the spark of life. For him, the silence is in Anahata. It is a mixture of Anahata with Vishuddha, what he describes here. It is love with some loneliness. Be alone. Learn to be alone and learn to charge your batteries when you are alone. Learn to put value on the time which you spent alone because it's very beautiful to be alone. I think uh, a great thinker, I forgot exactly who said that, said that people who are getting bored when they are alone, it means that they have nothing to tell to themselves. Not like a spiritual person can speak with himself a lot, because they have got a lot to tell to themselves. There is a lot to tell to your soul, because your soul has this mystery that it's the channel which communicates with the transcendent. And therefore, if you are afraid to be alone, it's like you are empty inside. There's no soul in you. When you are left alone, there's nobody there. But when you, for the mystics, 
when you are left alone, you talk to God and God in your heart. And God is the most interesting partner of conversation that you can have in this world. Nothing or nobody compares to that. That's why mystical people, they always enjoy time with themselves. The next poem is playful. It's really nice, Anahata. It says, the lover comes, the lover comes, open the way for him. It's like Krishna comes, Krishna comes, doesn't matter. Somebody comes, you know, the lover comes, God comes, open the way for him. He's looking for a heart. Let's show him one. Like, oh, God, we heard that God wants hearts. I have a heart. Well, let's show your heart. Ice cream. What you came to hunt is me. No, like little children, like so innocent, you know, God is coming, let's show him a heart. And then I say, you came to hunt, it's me. He says laughingly, I'm here not to hunt you, but to save you. From the standpoint of the human being, it's like God is hunting you. But actually the meaning of the union with God is salvation, liberation, enlightenment, emancipation. Remember immortality and freedom. Another poem is like an echo, but it's before in time of the Shakespearean thing, because it's called I am and I am not. I'm drenched in the flood which has yet to come. I'm tied up in the prison which has yet to exist. Not having played the game of chess, I'm already the checkmate. Not having a single cup, not having tasted a single cup of your wine, I'm already drunk. Like the relationship of man with God, right? It becomes more and more clear. I'm checkmate. You know, what kind of game of chess can you play with God? There's no way. You know, you are checkmate from the beginning. No, not having tasted a single cup of your wine, I'm already drunk. If I taste a cup of your wine, it means I have been in ecstasy. But even without going in ecstasy, and I'm already drunk. Not having entered the battlefield, I'm already wounded and slain, killed. No, it's like I have died. It's this, die, die, die. It's like what battle? There is no battle, you know, confronted with God. Everybody does not exist. It's only an illusion that somehow I'm doing something. But everything which I'm doing is insignificant. It's all about the grace. I no longer know the difference between image and reality. Because this is an image. But the reality is the consciousness of Shiva. It's the divine aspect. What's the difference? It's not possible to say because the image is a reflection. And am I the image or am I the reality? Like the shadow, I am and I am not. Wonderful comparison. Not with a reflection, but with a shadow. Does the shadow exist? Well, you can see it. You can take a photo of it. So it exists. But actually the shadow is nothing. Because it's just the absence of light on that patch. 
So the shadow is not. So like a shadow, he says, I am, I am not. And one called I am yours. Because the idol is your face, I have become an idolater. In Islam, as echoing something from Judaism, they had this thing that you should not try to represent the divine. Even the Prophet Muhammad cannot be drawn or painted because you will limit something in your imagination. You have to leave the potential open. Like the divine is so great that only in your mind you can represent it abstractly, formidably, causally something. And, but the face represents an idol. If you drop the Prophet Muhammad, you draw an idol. Exactly in the same way in the synagogues of the Jews, you don't find concrete images of God or of Moses or something. They are not as strict as the Muslims, but in the synagogue they don't represent divine things. Only the Christians in between them, they came with this special permission that actually the image as the reality they are related because one is the reflection of the other and it's like they said manifestation also has a meaning not only purusha but prakriti also and one christian saint when he was asked about why do you guys draw jesus and make icons and then you worship the icons and then he gave the following example he said bring the photo of your king or governor or ruler and they brought and they said now spit on it everybody was like we cannot spit on the photo of the king and he said why it's just a picture doesn't represent anything you are saying that my image of jesus represents nothing then why don't you spit on the photo or the painting of the king because it actually does represent something in a holistic spirituality. No? And Rumi says, because the idol is your face, Jesus was, for example, called the face of God. Like you can't see God, but you could see Jesus. And through Jesus, you see God. God, Jesus is a sort of incarnation of God. And he says, because the idol is your face, there is some idol which we can represent for God. And he says, because the idol is your face, I have become an idolater. Like I'm worshipping idols, which in Islam it's really forbidden. It's a spiritual crime. But he says, I cannot stop myself from being an idolater because the idol is related to your face. Because the wine is from your cup, I have become a drunkard. Like you made life on earth, in such a way that normal people, as well as spiritual seekers, they experience love, they experience joy, they experience, you know, and we are like drunk. And then somebody is saying, you don't have to write the right to be drunk. It is, uh, you know, it, you are not a serious person. You have to be very strict, Spartan, tough, and so on. He says, because the wine is from your cup, the love is coming from you. 
I have become a drunkard. You know, like all I can do is drink and drink and drink. And I want love and I want more love. And I want more love. And I'm just in search of love. I'm, I'm an addict of love, just exactly like a drunk is an addict of wine, of alcohol. In the existence of your love, I have become non-existent. Like what do I mean compared to God? What does a drop mean compared to the ocean? In a gazillion years, which one will still exist? The drop or the ocean? Therefore, it's clear. He says, in the existence of your love, the fact that you love me and you are giving to me this greatness, I have become non-existent. You know, like if you want me to go on planet Earth and be crucified in Jerusalem, I will do it. But the only thing which exists is you. So great is their love that it produces this annihilation, like the Dumavati energy, the void. You know, I want to not exist. All glory be to God. This non-existence linked to you is better than all existence. The non-existence is Purusha, is the void, is the Buddha nature, the spirit. And in spirit, you are one with God, you are linked with God. And he says this non-existence, this void, which is like it's nothing, this void linked to you is better than all existence. Because in the existence everything changes and is impermanent, but in the spirit I'm linked with you. Therefore, when he writes such things, you know that this man was not just reaching Anahata Chakra. You know that this man was reaching the void, and that this man was reaching Nirvikalpa Samadhi, and this man was reaching Sahasrara, and this man was reaching the Divine Consciousness. Because otherwise, he would keep on writing something about a wonderful love. And he would be okay. Here is the difference between such a man and Kaklil Gibran. Kaklil Gibran wrote wonderful things. His quote, that paragraph about love and a couple of others, they are pure genius. Kaklil Gibran was a wonderful literary genius and he understood love and a lot of other spiritual things, wonderfully, wonderfully. But he still doesn't have the profoundness of Rumi, because he never writes about non-existence, about die, 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 and all that. He is aware of most things, but not the real heavy-duty ones. Because of your love, I have lost my sobriety. As I told you three weeks ago or four weeks ago, the path of bhakti yoga is very crazy. Here in Agama, we often practice a rational path, which is partly Buddhism, partly Kundalini, Laya, Tantric, Yoga, partly Kashmiri Shaivas, partly it has all the parts from it. And of course, we have many people who have aspiration. And we have many people who have aspiration from the heart. And because of this, implicitly, many of my students are practicing a certain degree 
of bhakti yoga. We do not have here a school where you have the bhakti yoga like in the Chaitanya schools of India or like in the some Christian uh, mystical environments where it's all about bhakti yoga. It's a percentage. But I told you that in this bhakti yoga, one of the characteristics is that you don't understand what is happening. You have to surrender completely And very often it seems like God is crazy and is playing with you in hopeless ways, in ways like you don't see the light in the end of the tunnel. There doesn't seem to be a strategy. There doesn't seem to be a plan. Everything is... And the only thing which you can do is surrender, surrender, pray, pray, surrender more and pray more because you don't see it coming. And then somehow by a tour of magic God is getting the white rabbit out of the hat so you didn't see it coming and yet you are there the things are fulfilled and all you can say glory be to God you know God has given God has taken no I didn't understand shit but there's so much grace that somehow I made it God took me to the other shore And that's why he says, because of your love, I have lost my sobriety. Because if in Buddhism, look at the monks in original Theravada Buddhism, how strict they are. And if you look at the people in Bhakti Yoga, they seem to have no sobriety. Yes, they can be ascetic and do their daily prayer and discipline, but still their life is a life of like God has given, God has taken I live at the mercy of the elements and of God, you know, which is different. And he says, I have lost my sobriety. The life of a bhakta is not a life of sobriety. It's a life in which love is sparkling and shining and it has a different shade. That's why in many mystical environments, a little bit of wine or something is actually physically allowed. While when you go to the Buddhists and to the Hindus and so on, no, there should not be wine, there should not be alcoholic beverages and so on. He says, I am intoxicated by the madness of love. Love is like a madness and you know it. If once in your life you fell in love, at least with a human being, but really, really, really (laughs) fell in love, Okay, nobody is perfect at that, but let's say you lost 80% of your ego for three days. Then you know for those three days, you lived in insanity. You were intoxicated. It's like you took an enormous drug. You lost your sobriety. He says, I'm intoxicated by the madness of love. This is how love is. If you want to be a real bhakta, when you read the lives of Mirabai, or of Chaitanya, or other great bhaktas of India in the medieval times, they were nuts. Even Ramakrishna, to a large extent, was nuts. Like, he acted in ways which made no sense, as being drunk of too much love. If if the love for a person can make you so crazy, imagine what successful love for God can give. In this fog, I have become a stranger to myself. It's like I live in a fog. Like, what do I have to do? 
No, there were mystics in the lives of the fathers of the desert. They couldn't remember if they had eaten. They uh, said, uh, you know, Father, um, let's eat something, said the disciple. There is a story. And the old man says, but uh, young boy, haven't we eaten today? And he says, no, Father, we haven't eaten. Uh, okay, he says, then let's eat something, you know. Like, he doesn't even feel his body, his stomach. He's, he doesn't feel that he's hungry. He lives in such a fog, no, that he... And here he says, in this fog I have become a stranger to myself. Did I wash today or did I forget? Or did I eat? Or did I forget? If you can forget if you have eaten, imagine how much detached you have to be. I'm so drunk, I've lost the way to my home. All the organized things, that's where my home is. That's where my security is. That's why many of these mystics They roamed through India and through Europe and so on. They were pilgrims. They were mendicants. They were wandering around. Many in India and in Europe, they had the rule of never spending more than three days in one place. Go, go, go. You lost the way to your home. Where is your home? I don't know. I've lost the way to my home. You know, like I'm completely gone. In the garden which is the universe, the world, I see only your face. Like wherever I look, I see the symbol of God. From trees and blossoms, I inhale only your fragrance. God is everywhere. The only thing I care about is God. I have lost myself. I've lost the way to my house. Doesn't matter. I just go and go and go. Drunk with the ecstasy of love, I can no longer tell the difference between drunkard and drink, between lover and beloved. The one who drinks is the same with the drink, which is God. The lover is the same with the beloved. Where is the difference? There is no difference. This is where Rumi touches the mystery of monism. That actually, when the love becomes so drunk with the ecstasy of love, what's the difference between the drunkard and the drink, between the lover and the beloved? I'm one with God. God is in every atom of this world. And I'm all over the place as well. But without being chaotic. A strange passion is moving my head. My heart has become a bird which searches in the sky. Every part of me goes in different directions. Is it really so that the one I love is everywhere? Amazing, simple poem in which basically says my motivation is in the heart, not in the head. I don't do things in a cerebral way. That's the great issue of bhakti yoga, that then you just surrender, but you are brainless completely. In yoga, you are not brainless. Patanjali said that after asana, you do pranayama, and after pranayama, it's not brainless. It's very brainy. But this is not the yoga of Patanjali. This is the bhakti. It's just like wildly, wildly. And he says... My heart is soaring to heaven. 
and everything goes in every direction, which means God is everywhere. Is that possible? That's again monism, pure monism. The next poem, I think, is the poem which he wrote once when he reached a good state of samadhi, maybe his first, and it's one of my favorite poems in his writing because it's a poem of spiritual victory. I wish that one day you will all be able to read this poem and feel like it's written by you. Feel that it's written in your heart. He says, from the beginning of my life, I've been looking for your face. But today, I have seen it. It cannot be more clear than that. Today, I have seen the charm, the beauty, the unfathomable grace of the face that I was looking for. Like, how to try to describe God. Like I've seen, and now ask me to describe, I've seen what? The charm, the beauty, the unfathomable grace. Like, he would give to God the supreme epithets. He gives a lot of epithets from the heart. But, no, he says, I found what I was looking for. Today, I have found you. And those who laughed and scorned me yesterday are sorry that they were not looking as I did. Somebody has called this the revenge of the nerds. You know, Rumi was a weirdo, a freak, a nerd, an unadapted person until this day. When this day has come, then the tables have turned. He says, today I found you and those who laughed and scorned me yesterday, which means there was a lot. People were laughing at Rumi. People were scorning Rumi, like, ah, yeah, that loser called Rumi. Is he still praying to God? <laughs> you know, people were like, you know, there's somebody who is wasting his life. There, a loser. We'll have to give him some rice to eat, you know. He lives from our mercy. No, this is not a guy who has a business and he is successful. And, you know, and so, Those who laughed and scorned me yesterday are sorry that they were not looking as I did. They are sorry only in their soul. But unfortunately, such people never would admit it officially. Very, very seldom. Only one in a thousand. No, but the rest, what they do is that they hate you for it. They envy you for it. Because until yesterday, you were the village idiot. Until yesterday, you were a clown that could be scorned. And now you are Jesus. Now you are Rumi. Now you come and turn the tables and say, Listen, O Israel, the God thy Lord has spoken. (laughs) Isn't this the idiot? Isn't this the village idiot from yesterday? Yeah, but he found the peerless pearl. He found that pearl in the net, as Jesus was saying. And now you are talking to the boss. Now you are talking to a Brahmin. Now you are talking to somebody who knows God and who is a thousand steps ahead of everybody. It's a sort 
over revenge. Like I invested all my money on one horse, on one number in the roulette. And if I win, you all have to kiss my ring, you know. You all have to kiss my big toe because I become the daddy. I'm the godfather now, you know. And it's like, isn't this the man who nobody gave two two pennies on? Yes. The man, that that's exactly what Jesus has, a parable. He says there are some stones that nobody can use for masonry, like rectangular. No? But those stones can be used as the cornerstone, and that's the most important stone in a construction. So he said the stone which everybody discarded, said Jesus, has become the most precious in the whole building. And it's called the cornerstone. No, we say this is the cornerstone of our philosophy, or some means the most important, the essence. The cornerstone is shit from the standpoint of masonry, and yet is indispensable and the most precious. A man like Rumi is shit from the standpoint of the business people of this world, and people like Genghis Khan and others, they are irritated by these people. And then suddenly they come and say, I have a message from God. You know, and then people want to kill them. They are irritated. So he is optimistic when he says that those who scorned me yesterday, they are sorry that they were not looking as I did. Their soul is sorry because their soul says this guy looked for God for 12 years and he found, he fucking found God. Why didn't I do that? Because then I would be the number one in the world. I put my energy into making money instead of looking for God. Now this guy who found God is a million times more important than me. I have money and people are listening to Jesus, who is a hippie, who is a loser, who is a nobody, you know? But he is everything, you know? People are listening to Rumi and he's a beggar. He's a fucking nobody, you know? So people are sorry in the heart of their hearts, but this is also what makes that in Kali Yuga, Manipuristic people who are very demonic, they hate spiritual people. Because the spiritual people, they took the cherry from the cake. They took the one cherry, which was, there was one cherry for one person in a thousand. And Rumi stole the cherry. He got the cherry. And the others are like, eh? we are working class proletarians and you are a fucking Brahmin sitting on a cloud and speaking with God. No? Then many people envy you for that. No? So you have to decide if you are working class proletarians or if you want to sit on that cloud. But for that, you have to let go. You have to risk everything. I was looking, but today I found you. I am bewildered. He's trying to describe uselessly like all the others have tried. I'm bewildered by the magnificence of your beauty and wish to see you with a hundred eyes. It's exactly like a man or a woman is in love with their partner and they say, I can't get enough of you. I want to smell you. I want to taste you. I want to kiss you. I want to hug you. I want to feel you in every way. Imagine how it is with God. How, how much more intense that feeling 
is with God. So he says, you are so magnificent, so beautiful. I can't even speak. He says, I'm bewildered by it. And I just wish to see you with a hundred eyes. You know, if I had a hundred eyes and I couldn't suck enough of your image in me, so amazing you are. So amazing. You can't get enough of God. My heart has burned with passion and has searched forever for this wondrous beauty that I now behold. He's speaking from there. Yeah? He is, he says, which I now behold. And he says, my heart has burned for, with passion and has searched forever. You don't know, but your heart, your heart, you who are listening to me, your heart has burned forever, has searched for that beauty. And I really hope and bless that you will see it in this lifetime, that you will experience it, that you will be 30 minutes, 6 hours, whatever, with this beauty. When you will see it, then you will see that Rumi was absolutely right. He expresses an inevitable thing. He says, my heart has searched forever for this wondrous beauty that I now behold. The next thought is, how long will it last? What will happen when I will come down and go to the toilet or eat a sandwich and I will not behold it? Will it go on non-stop from now forever? Or will I have patches where I'm there, I'm out of there, and then you become desperate because it's so good. It's like the most addictive thing that you can imagine. And he says, I love this verse. He says, I'm ashamed to call this love human. Because he knows what human love is. And it's pathetic compared to that thing. And I'm afraid of God to call it divine. Because he is humble. And he says, what did I do to deserve it? I'm just a piece of shit called Rumi. Until yesterday, people were scorning me and laughing at me. And now I found it. I'm even afraid of God to say, now I found divine love. Because it's like, I don't deserve it. I'm too small for it. I remember yesterday I was considered a loser and a weirdo. No, so... He says it's beautiful, this position, you know, this humbleness, the beauty of his soul, where he says, I'm ashamed to call this love human, because that's not how humans love. But I'm also afraid of God to call it divine, because it's like, wow. You know? It's like, I almost don't have the courage to claim like, yeah, you know, I got it. That's, that would be on Manipura. That would be the lion's roar as the Tibetans call it. But in Anahata, it's like, he says, I'm afraid of God to call it divine. Your fragrant breath, he talks to God, like the morning breeze, has come to the stillness of the garden. It's like in the morning, the wind is not blowing, and there is a moment of stillness. Nirvikalpa. Yeah? It's like, everything is still. You have breathed new life into me. He said before, if you die, die, die in this consciousness, then in this love, he says, 
then you will be renewed. Your soul will be renewed. So when you dare to die, then on the other hand, you are resurrected on the other side. So he acknowledges this. Now he is after. He says, you have breathed a new life into me. It's another life. Like Paul, he saw Jesus, he got blind, then he started preaching Christianity. And he writes in one of his letters, from that moment on, it is not I, but my Lord Jesus who lives in my body. He simply says, I'm possessed by Jesus. I gave my life. I gave my action. I gave every, I gave my body to Jesus. He says, you have breathed new life into me. Now I am the man of God. I have become your sunshine and also your shadow. Wonderful. No, sunshine and shadow, because God is beyond duality. You cannot say that God is good or bad or big or small or anything. So he says, I have become your sunshine and also your shadow. My soul is screaming in ecstasy. When you experience that state, it almost, you almost can feel it like that, you know. It's like there is an intensity which burns, which he poetically expresses amazingly. I haven't met anybody who expresses. He says, my soul is screaming in ecstasy. Every fiber of my being is in love with you. If you didn't have that experience, try to imagine the intensity of it. Because we all know that that intensity is there. In the abominable movie, what was it called? Train watching or train something about heroin addicts in England. Train spotting, yeah? Even McGregor or something. uh, There, there is a girl who, as introduction, he says, you are wondering what do we feel so desirable about injecting heroin? He says, imagine a big orgasm and then multiply it with approximately 10,000 times. And then you'll understand what's happening in my brain when I put heroin in my blood. Imagine the same thing without heroin. Rumi was having it. He says, my soul is screaming in ecstasy. It's almost like an unbearable, pleasant torture, like the orgasm. It's like a cosmic orgasm. Every fiber of my being is in love with you. But that takes intensity. Yes, that's why if you don't practice brahmacharya, you will never be able to hit because you are wasted. You'll fall asleep before you get to this state. You'll faint before because you don't have the power to sustain it. You have the power to sustain it only when your brahmacharya is good. Then you are wild. Even then, after a number of minutes, seconds, minutes, hours, you will fall like falling out of it. And you'll say, I need to sleep. I need to eat. I'm wasted. Because there is an intensity of it. You don't know what it takes 
for the people who spend hours and hours and hours in ecstasy. I read to you stories from the father of a desert when one of these fathers of the desert was standing like this and he was looking like a pillar of light, like his body was shining like a lighthouse. And he came back to himself only after five hours. Do you know what it means to stand up like this for hours and to burn for God like a candle, like a flame, like an oil rig which explodes and there is fire, 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 non-stop. You know, you burn and burn. That's not possible without Brahmacharya. Nobody can sustain that without Brahmacharya. So, my soul is screaming in ecstasy. Every fiber of my being is in love with you. The connections with the sexual orgasm are evident. That's why sexual tantra relies on this. He says, we can make you discover that if you manage to extend your orgasm and make it unbearable. Make it to the point where you say, my goodness, I'm losing it. I'm losing my mind. I'm going crazy. Your effulgence, God is presented as fiery. Your effulgence, like Moses saw God as a fire, a bush on fire. Your effulgence has lit a fire in my heart, and you have made radiant for me the earth and sky. The fire in the heart is the aspiration. Somehow God gave me grace, and now I'm longing for God. And I look at one of my neighbors, and he doesn't long for God. And I'm saying, how is this possible? It's the same God. We are the same human beings. Why some people can see and feel attracted And some people are just scratching their ass and living an indifferent life. In Kashmiri Shaivism, this is called grace. If you have been hit by grace, the question is, is it random? God is whimsy. It's like throwing seeds on a field. What did I do to deserve this? You don't know. Omar Khayyam, in his poem, Rubaiyat, he says, I don't know why. So he, he makes amazing poetry and he says, I'm, I'm a Muslim and I'm not a Muslim and I'm this and I don't understand anything about why I am the way I am. But it's all about grace. It's all about grace. And then he uses a metaphor which is typically Indian, the last verse in this poem where he says, my arrow of love has arrived at the target. It's, they compare the mind in India with stretching a bow. No? And then you reach at the target. I meditate, but did your meditation reach the target? I love God, but did your love reach the target? For Rumi, in the day where he wrote this poem, it did. He confesses by saying, my arrow of love has reached at the target. I am in the house of mercy. He is in the kingdom of God because he is with God. And he calls it, I am in the house of mercy. Because as Jesus has shown it, God can have a terrible justice. There is a Manipura of God 
God is on any chakra that you want. He created every chakra and every plane of the universe. And God has created any aspect. Therefore, you can meet God on Muladhara, on Zvadistana, on Manipurana. But when you meet him with your soul, it usually is in the heart. And then he says, when I have reached God, I'm in the house of mercy. That's why Jesus says, God is ready to forgive you 70 times, 7 times. It's the mercy of God is endless. Most terrible things that you may have done, they don't matter before God. Repent, love God, and then you are in the house of mercy. When you are in the house of mercy, there's not going to be punished. Sometimes this can be seen. And as people go to a priest and they make a confession. I have stolen something. I have cheated on my wife. I have done this. And then the priest says, Say seven Ave Maria and your sins are forgiven. I give you absolute... Like, is that a punishment? My goodness, that's the, the most profitable business that you can do. Because you go in the house of mercy and you have to do seven Ave Marias and to fast next Tuesday and then you are forgiven. Are you kidding me? I killed somebody and then I do six months of prostrations to God and that's over. Of course, the so-called punishment is not worth the crime. But that's because I am in the house of mercy. And there everything becomes toned down. God is merciful. That's why Saint Mary of Egypt said it so beautiful. She said, Glory be to God who loves people and wishes for their salvation. God wishes for your salvation and He is ready to make a lot of hocus pocus for you. He will diminish your karma. He will make it disappear. He will do a lot of good things. But all He wants is to see that you love and that you want, that you are not fake. Jesus criticized mostly this fakeness, that people pretend to love God, and actually they don't. He says, my arrow of love has arrived at the target. I am in the house of mercy, and my heart is a place of prayer. Remember the dangerous beauty when this guy is in love with the courtesan and she has to do her job and she has sex with the king of France or guy, and the guy says, my soul, my heart is gone to the devil. I, there's darkness. I hate. I want destruction. I want revenge. I want death and so on. You know, like Rumi says, here where I am, my heart is a place of prayer. That's all that can happen in his heart. There is no revenge. There is no hate. There is no ugliness. There is no nothing. He said, I'm in the house of mercy and my heart is a place of prayer. I can see that I still have five poems to go and it is so late. Maybe during the workshop, the retreat which I do starting next week, uh, maybe I'll read the rest of them just to have the feeling that I read all the this collection of Rumi poems, which I liked so much. There are again five left or six. But we have made another excursion in the world of pure aspiration. 
expressed through the bhakti, but what a bhakti, you know, like when would it occur to a Christian saint? There were so many who lived in the desert and they stood up and they prayed and so on. Why didn't it occur to any of them to just spin around? We don't have a simple, a simple example of Christian mystic who was spinning around. Why not? No, That's why I say, how do you express your madness? How do you express your quest? How do you express your aspiration and the desire of your heart? So much creativity in the case of Rumi, who wrote so much, so many things and so on. His world is wonderful. I myself have discovered it relatively late in my life. I think I've heard these poems of Rumi somewhere around the year 2000. No, So I was 38 years of age. I was not in the beginning of my yoga. But like I've done lots and I've seen lots of things without even knowing about what Rumi had said or written or done. And then I did a meditation with a couple of friends and I listened to his poetry. And then I said, indeed. Now then I discovered one more of the great mystics of this planet who had been in touch with his own supreme self and in touch with the divine consciousness. I wish you all to be inspired by the aspiration of such titans, of such giants. If you have aspiration, don't be ashamed to have it. It's a gift from God. Khalil Gibran said, don't slam the door in the face of love. You know, if you feel that you are going crazy and you love God, it would be a stupid thing to say, not now, I don't have time for that right now. It's like, what's the most important thing? Accede to this madness. Go full power. Practice the yogic virtues and experience this aspiration. Again, it's not the specificity of Agama, because here we tell you, stand on your head, do the Viparita Karani Mudra, do this, do that. Like We have lots of methods which amplify your work. And of course, you may have a lot of collateral things. Like you say, I won, but I am a musician, and I want to develop my Vishuddha Chakra to compose better and better quality of music. So I want to be a lover of God, but I also want to compose music. You've got a double purpose, and both of them are wonderful. So there is nothing wrong in the fact that you say, I want to keep a part of my practice just for my Vishuddha Chakra, because I want my Vishuddha Chakra to be gigantic and really fantastic. It's wonderful. It's very good. So that's why uh, be clear about your aspirations, be inspired, allow yourself to go into this. As you know, next week we have a retreat which we call the Awakening of the Spirit, the Agama Retreat. It's a retreat which happens around the birthday which I have together with Mukta. Because of this, we, want, we make it always a celebration. I want to tell you some things about my aspiration and what has moved me and about the chakras and some of the things which I discovered. And we'll practice in this spirit. The purpose of this uh, retreat is mostly to activate your aspiration as I did in this satsangs 
through the energy of Rumi and the fathers of the desert. And um, it's also a retreat which happens at very auspicious moment. We were about to call it the retreat of the two hiatuses, because two super important moments in the yearly cycle, which we call hiatuses, the time hiatus and the space hiatus, they all happen in this period between 23 to 28 of August. So there will be a time of revolution of change at this time, and I hope I'll see you there. During that time, there will be no satsang on next Thursday, therefore, separately, but there will be satsang in the retreat. There will be every day one hour or more of Dharma talks, as they call it in the Buddhist retreats, of spiritual talks. And there I will continue with things relative to uh, aspiration and this wonderful universe of it. Thank you all for joining tonight. And I hope to see you in the coming activities here in Agam.